Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Here at How to Money, we're always encouraging listeners to think about some of the different ways they can earn some money on the side to reach their financial goals. And guess what? While you're away, your home could also earn extra income. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. Yeah, hosting is a lot easier than you might think, and you don't need to Airbnb a whole house. You can just host your extra spare room. So consider becoming an Airbnb host, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Matt here for Health Aid Kombucha. This bubbly probiotic tea blended with real fruit juice is deliciously thirst-quenching and great for your gut health. Health Aid Kombucha comes in many flavors like Pink Lady Apple, Passion Fruit Tangerine, and Ginger Lemon, which is one of my favorites since it has that extra ginger kick. I'm a big fan, though the kids prefer the the mango lemonade. It's organic, it's non-GMO, and a great alternative to sodas and other sugary drinks. Just look for the brown bottle with an anchor in your local stores. Give it a try today. Make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. Upswell Marketing would like to remind listeners that most people don't belong to two gyms. They don't see two dentists or trust two auto repair shops. So when customers choose your small business over your competitors, they're really choosing you. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads. And in fact, that formula and media mix has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. And new customers receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're discussing smart people doing dumb things with their money with Jill Schlesinger. We all make some financial mistakes from time to time, uh, but hopefully through through reading, listening to podcasts, and learning from our previous mistakes, we can move forward and make smarter moves with our money. That's what we're covering during this interview. Our guest today is Jill Schlesinger, who is an on-air CBS News business analyst, and she covers the economy and business uh, as she guides people through their personal financial decisions. Jill is a certified financial planner and also the author of the book, The Dumb Things That Smart People Do With Their Money. We're going to spend some time talking about a lot of those dumb things today. Uh, so Jill, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. This is such an honor. I feel very blessed to be with you guys. Well, we feel very blessed that you're here with us. And one dumb thing that people do, Jill, is <laughs> they drink beer when they're talking about money. Mm. Uh, so, and that's what Matt and I do. We drink oh, beer. Consider that nice. to be wise. Not dumb. <laughs> uh, and today on the show, we're drinking a, a, a IPA called Wedge Salad. Um, ah. And it's by two different breweries, uh, collaboration beer. But I wanted to ask you, since Matt and I, we intentionally drink a craft beer on every episode, and it's kind of this splurge that we that we partake in while we're saving and investing well for our future. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what is your splurge? What's your craft beer equivalent? I do a couple of different things seasonally. 
And I think that that's very important because I just don't want you to think I'm a complete boozer all the time without <laughs> any idea about what my surroundings are. So I live in the Northeast. In the wintertime, I do love bourbon. I love single malt scotches. But, you know, here we are coming into the summer, and I do really like myself a little tequila. So um, I can do tequila gin in the summer and amber liquors all other times of the year. Man, Jill, we could hang on the <laughs> rag. <laughs> yeah, I feel like my wife in particular uh, starts drinking more uh, tequila in the spring and the summer. You know, like once Cinco de Mayo's hit, like the rest of the summer, it's just wide open to margaritas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even uh, do margaritas because to me, adding sugar is just a devastating bad idea. And I always feel it the next morning. So mm. uh, I'm, I'm just straight up. That's it. Give me a little Blanco rocks, a little bit of lime. Done. Nice. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Well, Jill, let's kind of dive into it here. Your family has a fascinating history with money. You come from a long line of Wall Street traders, and you followed in your, your father's footsteps as well. So what was it like trading on the floor of the New York Commodities Exchange? I always like to think of it as it's a frat party meets a rugby scrum. <laughs> and um, and if you think about that, uh, you know, I am a woman of a certain age, i.e. mid-50s. And so the idea of Animal House, but we do it actually wearing uniforms and in a rugby scrum kind of seems about right. Hmm. And uh, I was one of eight women with... 800 men, which I didn't mind much. I mean, not that I was out and gay then, but I was very comfortable around men because I grew up playing sports my whole life and being the only girl out there. But um, it was disgusting. I mean, honestly, <laughs> the the whole Me Too movement, I, I mean, it, it, I had just the most awful things done to me, not violent things, mm. but like disgusting things every day. Yeah. And um, not that, you know, anyone would like sort of feel you up in the middle of a a trading pit, but they would elbow you and jostle you and shove you and pull your hair and, you know, call you really awful words that nice girls from Scarsdale, New York, don't ever say or think about saying. Right. And so just like in the first week of my career on Wall Street as a commodities trader, I was called an effing idiot in front of a huge crowd of people. Oh, and I just wanted to cry. In fact, I went to the bathroom to cry. But anyway, it was it was a great place to have worked. It's like being in a place where you're like, it was a great place to grow up, and I'm glad I never have to go back there. Glad to be done with it. You got <laughs> Done it. with all that craziness. You betcha. Yeah, that sounds like yeah, being one of eight females in, in a group of 900 men. That that is that's going to leave an impression on you. That's especially you know 30 years ago, right? Uh, or yeah. it's yeah. it's a, it's a different time. Different. Time. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In, in uh, one of the funniest things that like early in my career, I had um, a boss who was a tough guy from Chicago and a lot. Of, so I was an options trader. I didn't trade futures contracts. I traded the derivatives, the, the contract that derived its value from the futures contract. So I traded gold, silver and copper options. And options is sort of a mathematical sport, in some respects. And as a result, you know, you got this weird mix of sort of tough asses mixed with, you know, math nerds and everyone in between. And I remember my first boss was sort of this math nerd from University of Chicago, but he was sort of a tough guy too. And he said to me, uh, you went to an Ivy League school, didn't you? And I thought, oh, he's like 
recognizing me. I'm so happy. <laughs> I felt so good about myself. I said, oh, yeah, sure. Validation. Exactly. I'm like, yes. He goes, which, which one? Uh, I said, uh, brown. Brown, yeah. He goes, what's that like in Rhode Island or something? I said, yeah. He goes, you can take your Ivy League degree and stick it up your butt down here. No one gives a crap where you've come from. <laughs> And that was the bite that was like, okay, I'm never mentioning that again. <laughs> you thought he was going to have this nice, genial conversation, but not so much. Yeah, no, not at all. Well, hey, and Jill, I want to ask about when you went to Brown, you were a soccer player. You played soccer in high school. You played soccer in college. You mentioned kind of too that that trading pit was, was kind of like a sporting event. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, do you feel like that soccer, the fast-paced environment of playing high school and college sports kind of prepared you for maybe something that most people wouldn't be prepared for? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting when um, the only reason, I mean, look, there's a few reasons that I got this job. First of all, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. My uncle was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So I had experience on a physical trading floor, which essentially is like unheard of now, right? And then when companies would recruit for people to trade on the physical trading floor, they always wanted to work with athletes. They actually went to recruit athletes. No way. The, yeah. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why. One is that you have the idea of making decisions on your feet. You have the idea of, I know how to lose and move on. And you have the idea of uh, actually physically being able to manage it. I wanted to be a trader in the oil pit, but um, I wasn't big enough. And I'm, I mean, I'm 5'11", wow. but I wasn't <laughs> big enough. They, they, they thought I'd get pushed around too much. That is really? so crazy. I've never yeah. heard it described just from that much of a physical standpoint. Like, I mean, you said literally you're making decisions on your feet. Like, literally, you're on your feet making decisions running around. That's but, right. Uh, yeah, I wasn't quite aware of the, the physical nature of, of, yeah, being in the pit like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of your brass knuckles ready. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, Jill, you know, I've heard you say that you didn't like making money, you know, quite as much as maybe you thought you would. That kind of seems like uh, maybe an almost enlightened point of view, you know, especially for a money expert. So, how did you come to that realization, and uh, like, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, when I was a young trader, there was a. Uh, it was the late 80s. So, I mean, my I started trading the summer of 1987, meaning I didn't even trade. I was started as a clerk on the floor of the Commodities Exchange. Uh, by August, almost September, they were the, the people who had hired me, this firm that no longer exists anymore, it's been subsumed already, they said, okay, let, everyone's making so much money, let's just put these kids out there. And my boss my boss's boss sat us down and said, there are six of you here. We hope that half of you lose all the money in the account and no more. Two of you make decent money and one's a knock, you know, like knock your socks out performer. And so you each have a million dollar limit in your account. We will not allow you to lose more than a million dollars. As soon as you lose a million dollars, you are done and you're fired and don't even show up for work the next wow. day. So what was interesting is that, you know, I was sort of like the single and doubles double hitter. You know, I was the one who was like, finished the year, you know, we had the big market crash in 1980, in October of 87. I made a bunch of money. Um, I worked for uh, almost a whole year um, after that. So 1988, I traded. And I remember in basically around uh, the end of the year, I was talking to my dad and his business partner, and I said, you know, gosh, I think I'll just buy my own seat. I'll trade for myself, and, you know, I can afford to buy the seat myself, but I need money. And so they backed me. They put money in an account, and we split it. And then, you know, I was 
clicking along, making decent money. And I had one bonanza month, like in 1989 in the summer, I had a huge month. And my dad's over in my teeny tiny rent controlled studio apartment. <laughs> and um, he's looking at my profit and loss statement. Just we had physical sheets. And he goes, honey, you had some month. What a month. And I turned to him. I'm like, yeah. And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? Yeah. I said, yes, it was a good month. He said, you made more money in that one month than most of your peers will make in an entire year and maybe a couple of years. And you know what, honey, if you don't get any thrill out of making money when the money's there to be made, I don't know if this is the right business for you because there's nothing else. It really isn't. So you've got to love making the money. You have to know that it is, you're not you know, finding the great cause to advance. You're not, you know, bringing a company public even. You're not, you're, you're an intermediary who picks up, at that time we used to say eighths and steenths, you know, little, little fractions of a trade. And it's fun. And he said, and I've loved it my whole life because I had flexibility and I could come home and watch every single one of your soccer and basketball games and be part of you and your sister's lives and not be like the idiots who are, you know, lawyers and doctors and have no life. (laughs) But if you don't like that, if you don't like making money, you're going to have a problem. And it stuck with me. And it took me like another couple of years before I said, I don't really like this that much. I don't feel good about myself. I don't feel like I don't like who I am on the trading floor. And I feel like it's important that I figure out how to be a little bit truer to what makes me happy. And that was it. I was done. Yeah. So how did you how did you go about quitting then? What did that look like? Well, first I cried and told my parents. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, you have to understand there was like this great unspoken expectation that I was going to go into my father's firm. And all of his partners had that expectation, and I had that expectation. So that was one very difficult aspect of it. Um, I was dating somebody who was in medical school, actually up at Brown, and I felt like it was great because I could sort of escape and not really deal with my career indecision. You know, and by the way, people didn't just quit jobs then. You know, we didn't, we are not of that same generation. Sorry, that's my dog, Trixie. She, she's <laughs> that's all right. wanted to underscore that. Um, so I think that it was, so I went up to Rhode Island and I kind of started over and I figured I'd be there a couple of years while, you know, medical school finished up for my partner at the time and then just figure it out. And that was it. It was sort of like this weird interim move that was supposed to be just a couple of years and maybe come back to New York and see what happens next. Cool. Yeah. And now you're big time CBS News analyst, Jill Schlesinger. So yeah, what, how does, what's your role look like in media? How, how, do, you, how do you like that job? How, how's that transition been? Is it better than getting jostled in the pit? Um, well, in the in between jostling in the pit and media, I was an investment advisor, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor, little company up in New England, uh, grew it from nothing, became very big, um, and then sold it. I did it for 14 years and I had clients and it was great because I really did feel like, wow, this is a way for me to use my financial acumen, my love of solving problems. But bring it to somebody and fix a real issue, not a academic statistical 
question, which is really what it is to trade a derivatives contract. It's just like a, a great puzzle. It's like the Rubik's Cube of money making. You know, you're just like, oh, this is so cool. And you get into a rhythm and it feels great. So I did that for 14 years. And one of the ways that we grew our business was we hosted a radio show. And then that led to doing some television. And I had two really wonderful people who kind of guided me and said, hey, you're really good at this radio. You're really good at this TV. Uh, even though it's not your primary business, we'd love to talk to you as if it were. We're going to treat you like talent. And I said, oh, great. As long as I get people to fork over their money and let me manage it, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that's all I cared about. And then uh, slowly but surely, I started getting more national exposure. And then right in the beginning of the financial crisis early on, someone from CBS saw me on CNN and they called me up and said, you know, would you be willing to come here and are you exclusive there? No. And so I started doing some stuff for CBS. In the beginning of 2009, I was done with my business. I had sold it. I had done my contract and ready to move on. And someone called me from CBS Talent and said, we're hiring and we really think you should talk to us and do this. And I said, oh, my God, I've been working seven days a week, 24-7, clients, employees. I can't even think about this. I'm not doing anything. And three weeks later, I signed a contract, and that was 11 years ago. (laughs) And you've been doing this history. Yeah, since then. Yeah, it's awesome. Let me just say this, that being in the media, fantastic job like the best job I've ever had. I'm the luckiest person in the world. It is so, it's like a a supreme delight. It's like, I'm sure you guys feel this way. It's like you are helping people, giving them information. It's actionable. It's great. There's nothing, there's no downside. I mean, and they do my hair and makeup under normal (laughs) circumstances. It's even better when you're a podcaster. You don't even have to do hair and makeup. Right. Exactly. I mean, I don't know how often we think about podcasting is media and i mean we know it is like from a you know head knowledge standpoint but obviously yeah certainly the ability to impact individuals lives and, and help them when it comes to their personal finances and money uh certainly incredibly rewarding and, and joe we're going to dive into your book uh we're going to talk about some of the the specific dumb things that you know we all might do with our money we're going to talk about that as well as maybe a little bit too how the pandemic has impacted uh, our personal finances and we'll get to that right after the break I think there are a lot of folks who start small businesses and they're surprised at the amount of behind the scenes, the admin type work that they're not all that thrilled about. Getting your books together with uh, with some final figures so that you can file your corporate taxes, for instance. That's something we've been in the middle of. But it can really gum up the gears, potentially keeping you from doing the work you love. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. That's right. Yeah, 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. There's a lot of power in the simplification of having all that information in one place. Helps you make better decisions. That's right. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash howtomoney. That's netsuite.com slash howtomoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash howtomoney. 
So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. A big part of being a responsible adult is taking care of the things you care about. For instance, my bike that I ride in to work on. I keep the tires pumped. I keep the chain greased. Gone are the days of leaving your bike out in the rain for weeks at a time, like a kid. (laughs) Simply put, the things futures are built around are the things worth protecting. And making an estate plan now means gaining security of your assets and peace of mind for you and your loved ones. With Trust & Will, you can create and manage a custom estate plan starting at just $199. Go to trustandwill.com slash howtomoney for 10% off plus free document shipping. As the primary breadwinner for our family, I've taken the steps to ensure that Kate and the kids that they're going to be taken care of if something terrible happens to me. Each will or trust is state-specific and customized to your needs. Their simple step-by-step process guides you from start to finish with ease. So get the peace of mind you deserve by creating your estate plan with Trust & Will. Secure your assets and protect your loved ones with Trust & Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry, Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, we're back from break. We're talking with Jill Schlesinger. And Jill, it's time to dive into some stuff about how people handle their money. We'd love hearing your backstory and the trading. Fascinating stuff. But let's talk about people's emotions when it comes to our finances. And in, in your book, you argue that even the smartest individuals out there can do incredibly stupid things with their money. So how do otherwise smart people end up making idiotic decisions when it comes to their finances? Unfortunately, they are afflicted with this condition called being a human being. (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, don't you feel it all the time, even in yourself? You know these sort of golden rules of how to manage your money, about your financial life, and you even feel the drift of, of your emotions starting to inflict something on you. And it's like the, the sense that I really want to do this, but I can't. And so the 
the analogy I always give is is diet and exercise. You know, everybody knows exactly Such what to do. Such a good example, yeah. right? I mean, it's like you know what to do. You don't have to buy another stupid diet book. You don't need to, you know, move your body and don't eat as much. Okay, yeah. it's really it doesn't matter even what it is. So it's the same thing with personal finance. It, you kind of know what you should be doing. And you don't do it. And mostly it's just because you're a human being and the, our emotions are so, so strong. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to explore the, the emotional pull. Because, listen, when I was an investment advisor, I gave advice to people who were far smarter than I. They were really, you know, they were geniuses. They were physicists and there were, you know, uh, academics and they were lawyers and they were doctors. These people were super smart. But Again, they were just human beings and they couldn't get out of their own way. Mm. And I think that's really the root cause of most financial problems is that your emotions take over and it's really difficult to control them. If the problem's us being human, if it's humanity in general, that makes the solution really difficult. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. But you know, what's interesting, I would say, is that so much of what you can do today takes that emotional element out of it. You know, if, if you go back in time, if you kind of wind the clock back and I say 20 years ago when I was giving financial advice, uh, we didn't have automatic trading platforms for individuals and we didn't have auto rebalancing and we didn't have auto enrollment. So these automatic technological solutions are actually helping people stay out of trouble. Not enough, but yes, they really are. Yeah, it's a, a good step in the right direction. Kind of as you talk about the book, you, you talk about these emotional blind spots that we have. How can like individuals essentially identify which blind spot they have? Because obviously, if they're not even aware of it to begin with, how do they know to work on you know that specific area? Like so, so how how would you recommend for individuals to identify their own emotional blind spots? Well, I think part of it is to, you have to be aware, a self-aware person. So if you're just blithely walking through life, I'm probably not going to help you and you're not going to buy my book anyway, because you probably don't think that you're making a mistake at all. But most of us, I think, are mature enough to realize that there are things that we are doing in our financial life that maybe don't look so great. Um, And part of it is maybe it's just something you're not able to do. Why am I unable to actually get me and my partner to sit down and draft our estate documents? Or what? why am I staying up at night worrying about my 401k? Or why is it that I, I every time I say I want to do something in the financial realm, I second guess myself a zillion times? And frankly, you know, from the pretty base level, there are people who know they're in trouble financially and chances are you got there for some reason. Some of those mistakes are really hard to eradicate. But I can't go back in time and say, gosh, I wish that you did not go to a fourth tier private school, rack up a bunch of debt for no reason. Like I really do wish that most people didn't do that. The chapter about college funding in the book is essentially the thesis is if you can go to a top tier school and there's a real name brand that's going to help propel a kid, then sure. Or if you're really rich and you can afford to send your kid to a four-year party and you don't care, fine, go spend your money. I don't care. I'm more worried about the people in the middle who are borrowing a ton of money as parents, putting kids who are accumulating debt. They come out of a high-priced private school that doesn't is not a name brand. And it does nothing for them. And so I worry about those people. But when I was shopping around at the book, when I was just had a proposal, I made a comment. 
and I don't know where you guys went to college, so I'll just make it tell you that, like, I basically said to them, you know, like, if you were so stupid to spend $200,000 on what's the matter you, and I named the college, <laughs> and a woman's face, the blood was drawn oh, from her no. face. <laughs> She's like, I went to that school. It's like, that's oh. me. <laughs> yeah. So, honestly, I didn't get Hopefully her to bid on the project. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, and so, you know, the so one of the things that I think happens is that people when they uh, they they want to do well for their kids they want to do well for their families they don't really know the right questions to ask they um, they sort of take certain rules of thumb from a previous generation they apply it to them and in the end unfortunately what a lot of people will do is they'll just sort of make a bad decision not because they're dumb but because they don't know the they, they don't know the right way where to turn. So, yeah. you know, that that to me is sort of your your critical factor that like something is in your life and you're, you're agonizing over it. I had a colleague at work. His son just got into all these different schools and, you know, we went through all the numbers and he, in one scenario, the kid ends up graduating with $90,000 in debt and the other one, he has zero debt. Mm. So I had a conversation with the kid. I said, I want to explain to you what $90,000 in debt looks like when, you know, f- I want to just push forward five years and tell you what that looks like. And it was great coming from me because he's like, oh, I don't want that. Yeah, that's a lot of people, kids graduate from college, finding themselves in that situation. It's not a pretty place to be. Uh, yeah. So, Joe, I want to ask you the number one thing you wrote about in your book, that the first uh, of all the of the the dumb money moves that even smart people tend to make, you said is buying financial products that we don't understand. So you talked about infomercials selling precious metals or a, potentially a golfing buddy pitching you an annuity, and they both sound so good in the moment, and it's so easy in a quick one minute pitch to feel like, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty nice. I need to take advantage of that. But how do we avoid that one? How do we avoid getting a financial product, putting our money into something that we don't really comprehend? Well, I think that when somebody is approaching you with an idea, the first thing is if you don't really understand it and you can't explain it to somebody else, chances are put the brakes on. You need more information. But also, this also gets into the idea that you not only are buying products that you don't understand, but you're buying from people that don't have your best interest at heart. Hmm. And to me, this is incredibly important. This is called the fiduciary standard, which you guys I know are familiar with, but it just means that in the world of financial professionals, it's so strange, but most people who are in financial services are not required to put you first. They're required to give you advice that's suitable to you, but not the best advice for you. Mm. And there's something really crazy about that. I know it's a head scratcher. (laughs) But one of the things that I always say is that until you understand whether the person is held to this fiduciary standard or not, it's you just know that you're being sold something. And if you're being sold something, you approach it in a different way. And if you don't understand what you're being sold, then you just pause and you can get another opinion. And if you really don't understand it after trying to understand it like for hours, then just don't do it. The complexity of most products is a tell. The complexity tells you if you get like this 400 page document along, like you're broker, your salesman says, here, you know, here's, you don't have to read the whole, this whole thing. This is what it is. The thicker that document, the more risk it has to you. And chances are the more money it will make for him who's selling it to you. 
Well, Jill, speaking of risk, I've seen before that you know you've recommended to folks to have like six to twelve months of expenses, right, in an emergency fund. Like this, pretty basic advice as far as having that margin, having that that cash cushion. And, and this was even before the great lockdown. Uh, you know, has your advice to folks changed due no. to the pandemic? No, but don't I sound brilliant now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so many people are like, cash is trash. I don't think I need it. Yeah. And then a p- pandemic hits, and then you're like, oh, that's why cash is exactly. Necessary. I mean, yeah, that's, twelve yeah. months is uh-huh. is a very conservative amount of money to you know to, to have set aside like typically i feel like a, a lot of folks will say three months you know or you know three to six months right uh, but yeah i'd lo- love to hear your thoughts on that well i think this is again one of the benefits of working with real people and understanding what it means to not have that money and the mm. bad decisions you're forced to make when you don't have that little nest egg i think What people fail to understand is whatever emergency you think you're thinking about, most people will say, oh, it's an emergency reserve fund because, you know, my boiler blew blew up and I have to spend, you know, four grand on a new boiler, right? That's one kind of an emergency. The emergency that I'm much more worried about is the emergency where your earning capacity is really curtailed. You know, when you look at pre-pandemic, well, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's a dermatologist, and she lives in the New York metropolitan area, and, you know, she makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And this year, she will make less than $100,000. It's a big difference. Big difference. And for the people who work for her in our office who might have been making, you know, let's say that you were a technician and you were somebody who was in a big office like that, you were making $80,000 a year, and now you're going to make... $35,000 a year. And so you might even be lucky because you might be, you'd be able to retain your job. Now, if I'm somebody who likes statistics, which I am admittedly, and I like probability, and I like to understand outcomes, I will tell you that the devastating outcome is far worse than the upside potential makes your life better. Mm. And that's what people don't understand, that it's sort of the same concept of if I have a balanced portfolio, chances are I'll be just fine. But in a downturn, do I trust myself to stick with that portfolio that's really aggressive? We'll see. I mean, where a lot of people just found out the answer to that question over the last couple of months. Yeah, for sure. And that that's number six on your list is the risky investment options. And so, yeah, what are some of the big ways that you see individual investors getting too risky with their investments to, to their detriment? I think that um, one of the things that becomes quite alluring is this fear of missing out on something. And we've all felt that. I, I could think about the 2005, 6, 7 era, right? And everybody, you guys are probably too young, but you know, I just knew a ton of people who were making so much money in real estate. They're just flipping homes, crushing it, right? And like yeah. making money hand over fist. And and I go back even beyond before that. I knew people in the tech boom of the '90s who, you know, unless they were working for companies, you know, like those people, you know, really did make real money. But um, you know, people who were buying and selling stocks and day trading and making a lot of money and. And there was always a part of me that was like, oh, I must be an idiot that like, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable with that. Like something's not right here. And then the bottom falls out and you realize, oh, that's risky. Well, I think we just had that lesson on steroids. I think that we came into 2020 in a, you know, a, a the longest bull market on record 
in stocks, the longest expansion on record for the economy. And the 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 attitude was almost um, a, a blatant disregard for the fact that the money that was invested in the stock market in some of the edgier bonds, in some of these private equity and hedge funds that are just totally dopey and mostly not worth it, that the risk essentially was always there, but because markets were rising, people just ignored it. And so everyone feels like a hero in a bull market. I can take risk, I can take (laughs) risk, and I don't know about you guys, but in March, I got some pretty scary number of people who were freaking out. And why were they freaking Mm. out? Because they had so much risk in their portfolio. And of course, they knew it on the way in, but they just didn't pay attention to it. Well, I mean, yeah. So, like, kind of on that note, you know, one of the dumb things you mention in your book uh, that folks do is when they do try to time the market. And so, like, do you see a difference between, you know, buying when the market is on sale versus trying to time the market? Like, is there a difference to you? Um, it depends. Okay, I, I admit in the book that I tried to time the market and I got one leg really right and became like locally famous for it because I called the top of the tech bubble. And then I missed getting back in, which is always the other leg of the journey that's very difficult Mm -hmm. about timing the market. Here's what I think is a little different. All right, I'll use myself as a case. Uh, (laughs) In March, I had to make a, I thought, you know, taxes were due, right? In, in April, right? And so I was like, yeah, the market's off. I'm gonna put all, I'm gonna just put all the money in my, I have a personal 401k and a defined benefit plan. And I was like, the market's off pretty dramatically. I'm just going to pop it all in right now. Right now. Done. And I did that. And now the market kept going down. And I didn't say, oh, I wish I bought the bottom. But, you know, so there's money that has to get invested. I thought I had a month to invest it. And I was like, eh, market's down. Might as well do it now. Versus this. I'm going to wait until the market goes to blank. And then I'll get mm-hmm. in. And then not actually ever getting in and then coming back to, you know, now and being like, oh, no, I wish I'd gotten back in. So I think that a lot of people are trying to figure out what is the intersection of market timing versus risk management. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important is if you've er if you learned a very nasty lesson about risk over the past 90 days, it's okay to change your allocation. You thought you were a 90% stock, 10% bond kind of investor. You learned in the downturn that you freaked out. You really can't take risk like that. And you're really more of a 70-30. I'm okay with you going 70-30 as long as you don't start messing around with it once the market starts going higher. So it's whatever you've learned out of this period, you create a system, you stick to the system. I'm not one for timing the market so much anymore. I mean, I used to love trading. It was a fun thing. I don't do it anymore. So I have someone else manage my money, by the way. I don't even do it for myself because I don't want to get sucked into that world. There's a certain amount of discipline and time and energy that's required, and I don't have it anymore. So I think that if you want to have like a fun money account and play a little bit, great, go do it. Good luck. Yeah. No, I think that's some good advice, Jill. Hey, we've got a few more questions for you uh, on a few other subjects that you covered in your book, including buying a home versus renting. And and we'll get to some of those right after the break. (music) 
So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. I got my first life insurance policy almost a decade ago. And hey, I'm still kicking it. I very much hope that trend continues, Matt. And since then, I've actually added coverage via Policy Genius. And if you out there, you're listening and you're worried that this is going to be a massive pain getting life insurance, think again. Policy Genius made it an incredibly easy process. If you have loved ones who rely on you and your income, life insurance is a crucial part of your financial plan. Not only does it provide a financial backstop for your family, it also gives you peace of mind too. Plus, the longer you wait, the more rates go up because life insurance rates typically increase as you get older. So if this is something you've been putting off, it's time to make it happen now. That's right. Yeah. And even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000-plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava.com dot com slash how to money that's spelled 
K-A-C-H-A-V-A, and get 10% off your first order. That's K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash how to money. All right, we're back from the break talking here with Jill Schlesinger. And yeah, let's talk about renting versus buying, Jill. Uh, we're, we're totally with you on the American obsession with buying a home. You mentioned this in your book. Renting can often be a much better move for folks. But why do you think so many people refuse to see the light on this one? Because we are our parents' children. <laughs> I, really, I actually think that is true. Um, if you talk to anybody who is over the age of 40, they have parents who drilled into them that you must own something. Otherwise, you are throwing away your money or the, you know, you're throwing your money down the drain. Why are you renting? Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is that real estate never was quite as good an investment as everybody made it out to be. Here's why. You know, I I think about my parents. My parents bought their first home in 1962, okay? And so when my parents bought their house for, I think, $25,000, and then, you know, outside of, you know, in the suburbs of New York, and then... When they ultimately sold it before they moved to another house, but let's call it 1960, early 60s to late 80s, and they sold it for uh, $600,000, okay? Now, you might say, oh my God, look at all the money you made. But actually, which I proved to my father and and made him so depressed, he did make good (laughs) money. But um, when you account for inflation, Housing prices just really go up with the pace of inflation. It's amazing. Now, there are big spikes in certain times, and there are dips in certain times. But over the long haul, most people who own real estate, it's an investment that does maybe a little bit better than the pace of inflation, which is fine. That's great. So I think the problem is that there's like a romance around it. You know, that is why these Mm -hmm. funny home decorating magazines exist and that's why these shows flip this house and all these kinds of home improvement shows get you know it it is real estate porn right it's so much fun to look at it but I think that if you really run the numbers for each family many families would have been better off renting and not owning and I think the compulsion to own is a big mistake because it does sap people of the liquidity the extra money they might need to have options down the line. And that's really my main point about renting versus owning, that you never know until you run the numbers. And for some people, it's great. Owning ownership is great. But don't just go into it without actually considering what the alternative is. Like you don't make an investment without saying, okay, what am I comparing this to? My risk-free return, right? I'm I'm making an investment to com- compare to what I could earn on a 10-year treasury. Okay, great. Now, let me go from there. You need a comparison. And you can do this in every single market. All you have to do is you can, you know, pop into a calculator, rent versus buy calculator, and you can see. And also, it takes you off the hook. So many people who live in these high-priced markets, they feel such pressure. And all of a sudden, it's like, you don't have to feel such pressure. Relax. Who says you have to buy a house? Yeah, and especially in some of those high cost markets, the it even makes more sense to rent oh, in, yeah. in the the higher cost cities, right? Oh, definitely. Uh, 
and so you were talking about how you proved your dad wrong, and you, you made him a little <laughs> depressed, telling him about how bad of a decision he made buying that house. Number 11 on your list of dumb money moves is, is smart people, that smart people make, is saddling their kids with their own money issues. So can you explain how parents can negatively affect their children's view of money? How does that happen? Well, you know, it's so... I- you know, let me just say that as my therapist always like to point out, it's always your parents' fault. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So, true. Uh, so I don't think people mean to do this, but we carry with us in our DNA our stories, right? And our histories and our origin stories. And I, I always felt this you know, the one nice thing about my family is that because my father was very open and honest about his views around money, that money was a means to an end, that money was a way for him to live a life. I think my mother wished he had a little more, let me just be honest. And, you know, that that we could talk about it in a way where it wasn't loaded. But in so many families, money's a loaded topic because it could be that your first-generation mother killed herself to, like, make everything she has. And when she sees you in her eyes sort of taking that for granted, it makes her nuts. And so maybe she wants Mm. to control you with money. And, you know, I have a very good friend whose parents were so miserly, and she actually went the other way. So she felt like she was robbed of so many experiences because her parents were just so freaked out about money all the time that she overly indulges her kids and overly indulges them even as they are adults. And so these patterns that are created in your life are really important to try to acknowledge so that you don't necessarily react to them or buy into them as you have kids of your own. Notice, by the way, I have no children, which is why my cousin and I hope to write the next book, which is called The Non-Parent's Guide to Parenting. (laughs) <laughs> it's so much easier said than done. Totally. Right? <laughs> I mean, I think there's some truth there, though, as well. Like you joke about it, but when you're when you're not in that situation, I think you do have the ability to to kind of see things in a clearer light. Oh, like yeah. One of the things you mentioned earlier that that stood out to me, and, and uh, I should have jumped on it then. But you talked about you're talking to your friend's kid, who was considering uh, was it like ninety thousand dollars in debt mm-hmm. for school, and what was cool there is that you were able to talk to him about it in in sort of a you know, a more objective way, uh, in a way that he would not have been receptive to if his parents had been if he was hearing <laughs> that from his dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I, so, I, you know, that, that's you a, joke about that. That's but. a nice, but that's actually a, a good point in that sometimes I am brought, when I was an advisor, I was brought in as this impartial third party. I was brought in for, a, you know, parents with their kids, maybe their adult kids, to give the bad news. Like, you know how mom and dad have been giving you gifts every year, $15,000? They're not doing that anymore. Let me explain why. And it was easier for me to say it. They couldn't even say it to their own kids. It was so, it's sort of sad. But I was also brought in to help adult children talk to their parents, you guys are too young for this, but it is a bizarre experience <laughs> to watch your parents age and to then be in the position where you're trying to take care of them. And so many people are taking care of their aging parents and having a hard time discussing money openly because maybe their parents are not comfortable with that. And maybe their parents feel less than because of that. And, you know, what I always try to say is if I can, you know, if I at that time, or now if someone else can be your third party and help you have the conversation, 
That's fantastic. All you want to do is facilitate the conversation and, and you are going to be feeling so much better about the, the intergenerational issues that are arising. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. Sometimes you need that other perspective to come in because, yeah, I mean, even in, in my relationship with my parents, having that conversation, it's, it's gotten easier over the years, but it's never been easy. <laughs> and so sometimes having somebody else that isn't at the heart of the issue it can can help drive that conversation forward. Absolutely. And, you know, I know it's hard, gang. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, but not having the conversation, talk about like the, you know, risk reward on that, not having the conversation, you know where you got, what you got. It's not good. Um, and, yeah, and good you know, this is my, my last little pitch about the older people is that, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions in the last couple of months about estate planning. And there's nothing that drives me crazier than people who don't have a will. I mean, I just, I shame them into having will. I've worked with so many people <laughs> at CBS. I shame them. Like every day I would say, did you call this attorney? Did you call the attorney? <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting, you know, like the story about risk. What's the risk that you're taking? The risk you're taking by not doing that is that your family is going to clean up a load of crap that you have left on the front door. You're in action creates a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of work for your family that is unnecessary. The easiest thing in the world is to draft a will. Not doing it is just supremely selfish. Yeah, that's a great final point. Jill, this has been a wonderful conversation. We so appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. And yeah, so where can people find out more about you? Uh, they can go to my website, jillonmoney.com. And, you know, I, I do a podcast called Jill on Money. Isn't that funny? Just, you know, amazing. <laughs> Same name. And you won't be surprised that because we've been just inundated with emails, we've moved from twice a week to every day. Can you believe it? Man, that's you're podcasting way harder than we are. I'm exhausted. <laughs> well, you can't tell, Jill. We really appreciate the uh, the experience, the knowledge that you've brought uh, to this conversation today. And uh, and yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, Matt. That was a great conversation with Jill on Money, Jill Schlesinger. And she's just got so much great perspective, so many good stories. And I enjoyed hearing about her history as uh, an options trader. And yeah. How cool was that hearing about <laughs> the trading floor, the you know the pit? I had no idea that it was that physical. That's not my big takeaway, but definitely something uh, a little something I learned for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Nice a little insight into Jill's early career. Yeah, but speaking of big takeaways, Matt, what was your big takeaway from this episode? Well, man, there's so much <laughs> that I jotted down as we were talking with her. One, I kind of, you know, came back to you at the end of our conversation with her, which was, you know, she was helping her friend's son to understand the impact of student loan debt. And she didn't kind of dive into how exactly she did this. But I think we need to do whatever it takes to kind of understand the, the, the true impact of the financial decisions we, we, we make, you know? And so maybe for him, uh, you know, she was communicating that like, hey, this is what $90,000 in debt looks like once you graduate. This is what your monthly payment is going to be. You're probably going to be making X amount. So your paycheck's going to look like this every month. And I know that you like nice cars. And that's out of the question <laughs> if you've got that that's student loan payment. That's not going to happen. A third of your paycheck is going to go towards student loans. Just whatever it takes to, to make it real and concrete. Those normally aren't the steps that we take when we're in the moment. We're in the heat of the moment trying to make these decisions. And most of the time it kind of comes down to, well, I like that college town better. You know, like you think about the things on the surface. You don't think about the long lasting impacts 
of the financial decisions. Uh, and I think, you know, whatever it takes for us to, to wrap our heads around it and to think in that direction could benefit us massively. But yeah, I've got actually one more, but I'm going to let you share yours first before, <laughs> just in case I steal yours. Okay. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I think <laughs> just a little more due diligence, a little more thoughtfulness on the front end can help us from uh, plunging into astronomical student loan debt or yeah. uh, an ill-fated purchase that ends up plaguing us for years to come and, and causes us to incur more debt. So yeah, I think that's a great one. My, my big one is when Jill said, if you can't explain it to somebody else, put the brakes on. When she was talking about financial products and how yeah. so many people get into financial products they don't understand. And so yeah, if you are unfamiliar to the point that you can't explain it to one of your friends in just like a chill conversation over a beer, then you shouldn't be doing it. No matter what you're investing in, if you're investing in real estate and you can't really understand the numbers, you can't understand how it works, you can't, you don't know whether you're going to be profitable, you, sh you shouldn't move forward. And that's why we recommend some of the simpler ways to invest because it's easier to wrap our minds around. And so many other investment products out there are being sold to us. It's not something we asked for, but somebody else has a lot to gain by selling us that product. And so, yeah, we need to be able to understand it before we say yes, before we uh, invest our funds, before we sign on a dotted line. And just know that there are people out there that are going to try to sell you something that you don't want, that you won't be able to understand, or that's going to be really, really hard to understand. And it's not something that you should be buying anyway. Yeah, and a lot of times too, the, the more simple the product, the more likely we are to participate in it, right? Like if we know that like, I can go this route, and it'll be really simple, and it'll actually be something that I follow through on. Or there's this other really cool kind of sophisticated route, and I'm not totally sure how that works. And I'm just going to not take any action because I'm kind of confused, you know, yeah. indefinitely. Uh, that's that's not the position you want to be in. And definitely a route for getting burned. Yeah, exactly. And okay, I've got one bonus big takeaway. Uh, there at the end, we're kind of talking about her counselor, you know, <laughs> how she's saying that, and all counselors say this, a lot of them say how so many of the different issues that we deal with have to do with our parents. Wait a second, your dad listens to the show. Okay, don't go too hard on him. <laughs> no, this is, this is applicable to me as well as you and yeah, all of our listeners, but to keep in mind that we oftentimes do think the way our parents do, right? But she also gave an example of where she knew somebody who basically overcorrected. And so they were trying to go as far as they could possibly from their parents. Either way, whichever side of the fence you fall on, it's important, I think, to be aware of that because we need to know what it is that's shaping the way that we think about money, uh, whether that's negative or positive, or maybe you're not even considering that. Maybe you're just trying to find something that's maybe the polar opposite of what, whatever it is that your parents did. It's so important, I think, for us to keep that in mind you know, when it comes to how we deal with our money and, and why it is that we have certain attitudes towards our personal finances. But yeah, little bonus one wanted to mention as well. Yeah, that was good stuff. All right, Matt, let's mention the beer that we had on the show. Today, we drank a beer called Wedge Salad. It's a triple dry hopped Imperial IPA by two of our favorite breweries, Other Half and Green Bench. Yeah. Uh, different parts of the East Coast <laughs> down in Florida and New York. New York, yeah. But yeah, what did you think about this beer, man? Well, first of all, I want to start with the name, which is Wedge Salad which has got to be the perfect name for an IPA. <laughs> Specifically, because oftentimes I'll describe a, an IPA, in particular New England style IPAs, uh, as sort of having this blue cheese kind of funkiness going on. And I could not think of a better name for... Uh, a food that makes you think of blue cheese than a wedge salad, right? You yeah. know, blue cheese crumbles, a little bit of bacon. So first of all, they, they kind of won me over already with that. But man, this beer was so good. Bright, juicy, dank though at the same time. Uh, but I kind of keep going back to it being bright. 
it just tastes so fresh. It felt like alive in my mouth. Uh, this was a fantastic IPA, a great collaboration between two really great breweries. I'm actually just bummed that I don't have my other half hat on right now. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that would make the experience even better. Yeah, you picked that up when we got to visit their tap room and they had so many delicious IPAs on draft. It wasn't even funny. Yeah, it was so good, man. But uh, yeah, how about you? What were your thoughts on this beer? Yeah, so this one was triple dry hopped. And so I feel like I was completely feeling just a massive amount of dry hopping. I feel like it's the difference between watching something in high def or 4K. High def's pretty good, right? Yeah. That's a nice picture. But the 4K adds a little it's extra even, element. It's even better, baby. And that's that's the way these hops are when, when with the triple dry hop. I feel like the, my taste buds are kind of popping off my tongue a little bit. It's this all-encompassing mouthfeel. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Anything that Other Half ever makes, I will always give it a shot. I'm pretty much going to be a fan of them. Yeah, <laughs> every single time. Yeah, and Green Bench, the, the, these two breweries did a great job making this beer together so yeah i really enjoyed it plus the label is awesome too it's got this nice green and then it's just like this pattern of basically a wedge of iceberg lettuce like <laughs> kind of poke it out at all over the place the fork coming out of it so stinking good That's fantastic great. beer i'm glad we were able to we actually picked this one up while you and i were on a, on a bike ride uh the other day so it's like a perfect culmination of our relationship in this podcast as well. <laughs> Beer and bikes, man. And then talking about money. That's right. All right, Matt, that's going to do it for this episode. For folks that want more information and the show notes for this particular episode, you can go to our website, howtomoney.com. Yeah, we'll have some links to where you can learn more about Jill up there as well. And we want to thank you for being a subscriber to, to the podcast. Uh, and in particular, if you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to head over to Apple Podcast. Make sure to leave us a solid review over there that helps us to get the word out and for others to find our show who aren't doing smart things with their money so joel that's going to be it for this episode buddy until next time best friends out best friends out infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Upswell Marketing would like to remind listeners that most people don't belong to two gyms. They don't see two dentists or trust two auto repair shops. So when customers choose your small business over your competitors, they're really choosing you. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads. And in fact, that formula and media mix has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. And new customers receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. Hey, it's Matt here for Health Aid Kombucha. This bubbly probiotic tea blended with real fruit juice is deliciously thirst-quenching and great for your gut health. Health Aid Kombucha comes in many flavors like Pink Lady Apple, Passion Fruit Tangerine, and Ginger Lemon, which is one of my favorites since it has that extra ginger kick. I'm a big fan, though the kids prefer the, the mango lemonade. It's organic, it's non-GMO, and a great alternative to sodas and other sugary drinks. Just look for the brown bottle with an anchor in your local stores. Give it a try today. Make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 